Hi everyone, welcome to Brick and Block. This is the fortnightly podcast about architecture and climate change. And this week, I'm very, very happy to welcome not only a friend, but a great designer and a lecturer, Edward Crump. Uh, welcome, Ed. Thank you very much for joining me today. Hello. Always a pleasure. Uh, very much appreciate it also because uh, it is lecture time uh, for you as well. So thank you for making the time for this. Um, what I wanted to chat to you about was specifically your experience with technology and AI. Um, but before we touch base on that, I was wondering if you could quickly give a little intro to your background, because you weren't always a lecturer. You did start off in the industry. I did indeed. Yeah, um, of course. So you know me as uh, currently lecturer at Kingston University. So, which is, we're actually, it's a funny one. We're actually the school of art. So we're, we're within the university, but we're called a school. So I was teach at school, which feels quite strange, but, um, but it's a, it's a great place. It's a really interesting place. And I teach interior design there. And I, uh, before that I taught at university of Brighton. So I used to teach on the masters course there, uh, interiors and um, design and I've taught bachelors, but yeah, sort of working backwards, I, I'm, I'm in this place I absolutely love now, but before that I was with you at BG hey. um, <laughs> and we were having great fun, uh, uh, building stuff, designing stuff. But I mean, I started off on this pathway as you get to with architecture, started at Plymouth, did my part one, moved to Brian, did my part two. I felt like I was on this kind of train. And um, at some point I just realized I, I was like kind of stuck on this path and I couldn't kind of get off no matter what I tried. So an opportunity arose to kind of teach. So kind of guest visiting and I took that and I found that's what I really enjoyed. And and you'll see me in BG sort of buzzing around the studio trying to help people with sort of rhino yeah. and things. That's what I really love, love doing. So I thought, okay, I could do this. I'd like to do more of this. And, uh, it's been brilliant experience and jump in head first. You kind of get thrown in the deep end with teaching. I mean, yesterday I was on a submarine, you know, on a site. Yeah, visit. I saw that recently. So it takes you places you wouldn't think, but I've really, I'm really enjoying this current journey. And I, I like, uh, I'm really pleased about the time I had in practice and industry. It's given me a real grounding that I can then pass on to the students. Yeah. But, um, but being a, being, you have to, I think, I think you have to be out there in, in the world to then look the students in the eye. Yeah. It's come on, pick it up. <laughs> it's hard enough. So you've got to start. No, but so, it's really uh, interesting though. When you, when you do, uh, on the, on the very odd occasions that I've had actually the chance to go back to university and do some reviews or, or, a, or a short lecture it is quite nice to actually go back and see that enthusiasm that, you know, once upon a time we both had, um, you know, as students and I think, <laughs> but we, we, it's really interesting because I mean, earlier today I was actually, um, doing another lecture, um, and I was talking about a project that I worked on Holborn Gardens and it's really interesting to see the dynamics and how generationally it has changed. Do you, do you find actually that 
you will compare the students that you have to say when you're at university yourself yeah i mean that's that's the danger isn't it i think i'm kind of fortunate within the last sort of finished my master's 2018 so it's not too long since i've finished the master's part but my undergraduate 2010 it's it's a long time since then and and i i the change between the masters was they they were doing all right it's the undergraduates where it's where it has changed a lot it's it's quite difficult it's quite a difficult one to get into because you you do kind of try and think back to how you were but you got to be careful about not projecting kind of some romanticized idea of oh i was this i was a terrible undergraduate student honestly i <laughs> i kind of didn't go in i'm like i didn't know who i was and i think you have to somehow find some kind of we well, have to find empathy, of course, but you have to take yourself back and realize, okay, I was doing this and that wrong. I can't then sort of impose on a student and say, come on, you need to, because I was, I did this and I did that. And you, you have to ground it somehow. And, and, um, but it has changed, yeah. you know, it, it is changing, I think in lots of good ways. So the, the legends that we had when we were at university was like the crits of the nineties where people's work got kind of tossed in the bin and it was like awful, horrible kind of bullying culture that was going on as then that has been kind of called out in the press quite, quite recently, hasn't that? So yeah, it has. there's been big changes. We support our students a lot and I hope, hope they feel loved in this sense. We, we, we don't want that them to have those kinds of experiences, uh, which, which I think, cause they, they form quite damaging kind of long lasting effect that carries on into their lives. So, uh, we, we try and be, we try and be supportive, but, and then the students that, that come to us, of course, have different needs, but maybe not different needs. Maybe they're just more, um, there's more awareness about what needs, uh, incoming students will have. And therefore we are, we're working really hard to become as prepared as we can to help them with those. Yeah, that's really amazing to hear actually, because that for me is a generational shift to when we were at university to now. And I've, I've heard this a few times from, from other lecturers as well to see that, you know, the attitude of reviews as they, I think are more commonly referred to as rather than crits when we were at university is really nice to hear. Um, what I was also quite interested to hear potentially was you mentioned that your work experience in industry has, has sort of led it, led itself, I guess, to influence your teaching as a lecturer. Do you find that, cause also you, uh, when you were at Brighton, you, you told me once that you, you, you're quite big on the workshop, um, side of things. Was that sort of the beginning point of the technology interest? and AI, or was that sort of a, a combination of things that took you to it? That's, that's a really good question. How do I get into that kind of stuff? Uh, I, I chose it definitely. I chose to go in. I think once I left my part one, I realized that I kind of needed to grow up some, somewhat. It's just mucking about too much. So I, I went to Poland and I lived and worked in Poland for a bit. That, that changed me a lot. And I had a big gap between my, my bachelor's and master's. And, and in that time, I was kind of figuring out who I was and what it was I interested in. And that's, that was why I started at, that's why I chose Brighton. I, I, tutors there 
Uh, I spoke to her at the open day. They were amazing. And there were amazing workshop technicians there, which would listen to me and then help me achieve. They weren't, it wasn't the other way. They weren't just, you need to do it this way, but it's, it was more, okay, I want to learn how about how to do 3D printing. So, so Pete, legendary technician, they just sat me in front of a, of a resin 3D printer and just talked to me about it for a good 45 minutes and said, right, you're really? in charge. Here are the keys. And <laughs> the, and having someone to sort of give you that, that yeah. lifts you up. Guess that's kind of forming my teaching practice as the person I want to be for my students. But it made me kind of have that level of encouraged me to have these interests. So yeah, that, that's, how, that's how I got into it. Oh. Yeah, no, um, getting the right people around me. It was essential. That's really important, I think. Yeah, because if, if you don't get that sort of guidance, then I don't think you sort of take those steps in the right way, perhaps. Albeit it's all good to fail sometimes. But I mean, in because uh, when when we were at Bargazellas together, you were sort of quite prolific on the three D printing, and mm. I do remember you showing me quite a lot of like grasshopper and a parametric stuff there. But does mm -hmm. that have a link to AI? I mean, sometimes I always I always think that you know the parametric side of things has has established itself in industry. You know, whether it's cladding design. Or whether it's, you know, even massive models where, you know, you give it a couple of parameters and it can, you know, spit out various options. But with AI, it sort of feels like it's more accessible, perhaps for a generationally for a different thing. Would, would that be a right way of looking at it? Or is that not true? It's a really interesting, really interesting observation that looked. That it, um, it's somewhat democratic, somewhat uh, allows that connection. But I think, I think you're right. Parametricism requires a lot of technical skill in order to be able to engage with it. I mean, it's kind of formed itself as a style, as a movement. So I'm, not, I'm not sure how much I kind of how I feel about it. To be honest, I, I, the link between the two is kind of interesting in the sense that there are. Workflows being developed in practice, where it's a lot of, kind of running grasshopper, and then it it's fed into AI in terms of some kind of taking something quite intangible. You know, it's a series of blocks that kind of float around, and then pulling that into a sort of CGI render with people around it, so it, it gains a sense of materiality and spatial. Sure, that that's fine, but I wouldn't no, I wouldn't necessarily pair them okay. in a sense. Uh, something like Rhino and Grasshopper, three D modeling mm. software. You know, very useful, very super quick at making something up. Artificial intelligence is still something kind of very kind of gray and that we don't quite understand, I think, fully. I was going to ask you about because, well, because you, uh, you did that article in Mid Journey, um, about Mid Journey, sorry. Um, and I found that quite interesting because, because you were saying that, you know, whilst it's not necessarily going to replace us as designers, but it's, it's definitely going to be a tool that we can use to get quick options or whether, you know, we talked about the fact that it's, it's about accessibility in terms of, you know, people just typing in, Hey, can I have this, this, and this, and it spits out a couple of options. Where does that sit right now? It's probably the first question. And then the second question is leading on from that is, um, 
where does it actually sit in terms of finding solutions to design? Because it's all good and well getting an image that is Pinterest worthy. And mm -hmm. then it's, then it's a question of, does this actually give me a design solution? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's where perhaps the link to parametricism is, is being, is being drawn. Is this pretty, is this just for shows? It's just pretty, it's actually, uh, actually work. Um, I mean, I, I, before to prepare for this, before I, uh, I had to read my article again, I must say, so there's like two really cringeworthy things you can do in life. Number one is watch a video of yourself, never do it. And, uh, number two is read stuff you've written. That is, uh, Absolutely dreadful. Um, but, uh, <laughs> what are you talking about? It's great. It's great. <laughs> Why did I say that? <laughs> what am I talking about? Uh, <laughs> uh, but no, look, looking back, uh, this was kind of early days of Mint Journey. And there was another software that was emerging around a similar time called Stable Diffusion. So it's where it kind of feels like software. So that's, that's what I'm describing at. And Mint Journey, it stayed in that place. It stayed in that kind of, I would call it pornographic. It just makes you beautiful, gorgeous things that you want to see. And you, you can't sort of get over what, and you keep reproducing and reproducing these images and they just look so great. But, mm. but what, what's the point, I guess, was the whole kind of theme of the article. It's the point of doing all this. Yeah. But it's moved on. It's moved on a lot. Which is, which is good. So mid I think is still stuck. I'm not sure the people running it, I'm not sure where their intentions lie because architecture plays a big part of it, but to bear in mind, maybe they're more interested in animators or other professions and how they use it maybe a little bit more. But I found that with the advances in the way that AI is deployed, we can use it for ideation. We can come up with kind of concept images quite quite easily that form a kind of Pinterest board, but it's, it's layered now. So we've got a technology called Veras AI that you can plug into SketchUp, Rhino, and I think other softwares, uh, Revit, other softwares coming soon and you hit a button and it just renders out your kind of blank model. So you sort of RIVA stage three is starting to be affected. Uh, also in terms of plan CAD drawing, Finch 3D is another AI software. You draw a rectangle. You say how many bedrooms you want, bang, you've got it. And you adjust that rectangle and it adjusts the size of the bedrooms. Uh, and I'm sure that Autodesk will start to deploy that as well in, in Revit. And it will, it will come a system where instead of selecting each finish of the wall build up, you will just say, give me a cavity brick wall and I don't know, about 2000 pounds a square meter. And it will just kind of come up yeah. with, uh, come up with something for you. So the, so the way it's. But it's now kind of feeding its tentacles into various parts of the design process, mm -hmm. which is, which is great. So we're running an AI meetup in, at Kingston. We are right. getting together cross-disciplinary every Tuesday evening, and we are sharing the ways in which we use it. And one of the ways I've been using it is getting good old pen and paper out, drawing some, some designs up, scanning it in, and then running it through the AI in order to try and have more of a try and make it have more point, I guess. Right. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. You are an amazing sketcher. You do amazing drawings. And I want to. I want to. 
And I, I sort of learned from you as well. So it was coloring those up in Photoshop and creating this kind of image, whereas now you can scan it in and like render come up out of it just from your sketch. And I love that it's promoting those kind of craft-based skills as well. So I ran, I ran a, another workshop. I got a sketch model out, made out of some paper and toilet rolls, and I photographed it and I ran it through the AI and I showed the students my terrible model and then this kind of like cave slash museum space. So um, that it's got, I think it's, it's growing, it's coming along, becoming less about Pinterest, but uh, it's an exciting space to really be looking at. There's lots of opportunity there. Yeah, because I guess yeah, because for me, it sort of felt like, sort of felt like it's not just about the image that you can create, but it also feels like the, the points that you mentioned um, about, you know, make the windows a bit deeper. Have you thought about, I don't know, the bricelet in front of this or whatever it might be? I think that's going to be the next step for it to actually affect what we're trying to do with climate change. Like if we want design options, if we want AI to help us create design options, that's going to help tackle climate change, then it's probably got a little bit more of a way to go in terms of saying, Hey, I want, you know, a hundred square meter office floor plate. I want this many windows. I want the ratio to be this because you know that, you know, the window to wall ratio, you know, this would be optimum. Um, there's probably an element of that, that you probably can do in sort of with the help of grasshopper perhaps, but for you to just sort of go, yeah. I want this percentage and I want the walls to be this thick. And they're performing at this sort of insulation. I guess that's sort of the next level, I guess, that perhaps maybe we're not there yet, I guess. It, it will come. I can tell you that from looking at the other softwares that are around, that, that will plug in. That's, that's a kind of no-brainer, uh, the way that will arrive. It's, we've, we've talked about this before. There are shiny solutions to, or well, not solutions, it's like shiny propositions. So you can 3D print out of algae. Fantastic. Yeah. But the, the real solutions are quite dull, right? So it's, this is it. The real solution is, is it some kind of someone working really hard and really long to develop a software that will work out your window wall ratio. And that yeah. those are the things that will make a difference in this world, not color 3D printing a, a floor, a kind of tile. Do you know what I mean? That's what, yeah. this is, um, it's there, it's coming. Uh, those kind of, those kind of solutions, I think. On the visual side, on the kind of, like speaking as designer slash artist, it, for me, there's a lot of power and scope in creating visions of the world. So something we're doing now quite rapidly through this kind of mid journey, stable diffusion phase is we're building new ideas about what the world could look like. And I think that's really, that's really important from the artistic side of things. So. For example, the circular economy has now become huge and it's supported by governments, policymakers, and, and that's providing our third year students who are working on a project to provide a vision of what that could look like. Because when it's a 400 page, uh, policy paper, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> how does, how does Margaret from down the road get involved in that? How, yeah. how does she feel about this? <laughs> she probably looks at it that thick on the table and goes, yeah, great. Yeah. Uh, what? <laughs> Whereas how can you create something that people can emotionally involve and invest in? And I think that's where 
So that kind of, this kind of mode of AI can plug into, and then that back end, quite dull AI can, can actually do the heavy lifting, can do the real, <laughs> the real worst. Yeah, no, but it's, yeah, it's no, true though, isn't it? The, the real solutions. I mean, I've, I've built this podcast as, you know, a conversation about practical solutions. And, you know, that's, that's set back on the basis that, you know, there's a lot of what I call fluff in the, uh, in the industry where they talk about high level thinking. But what I'm really interested in finding out from various people is what actually can you do? What can you implement to actually get us to that point? And if we do these small changes together collectively, you know, whether it's, you know, reinterpreting a 400 page policy document so that we all understand, you know, what that actually means, what does our world potentially look like to coming up with small solutions? I think every little bit is going to help. And, you know, I think if we can do that collectively, then we're, we're, we're definitely going in that right way. And, and for me, it's, it's really interesting where technology has this role where it can genuinely help us. And I totally agree with, with what you did say in the article that it is a tool for us. And, you know, rather than being, you know, I know there's some sort of whimsical statements out there, oh, you know, designers are not going to have a bit of a role, whatever, but it is actually a tool for us to actually see what options there are available and, and helping us understand things and sort of quick, sort of quickening up our design process in some areas. Um, but, but also perhaps letting it give us options and thoughts that perhaps we may not think about on the immediate stage. Yeah. You, you, you're sort of touching upon a big elephant in the room there, right? That sort of what is, why are we doing all this? Why do yeah. we design all this stuff? Uh, someone in the research group a couple of weeks ago came in, he's, he's a workshop technician. We have a mixture of students and stuff. And he just said, hey, don't worry about whether you're going to lose your job or not. You've lost your job. That's what he said. <laughs> But actually engaging with these technologies is how you get it back. So if you refuse to engage with this kind of stuff, yeah, that's, that's kind of a risky move at, the, at this point. I mean, at the end of the day, we, why are we evolving all this technology? I believe we're, we're trying to emancipate ourselves from work. It's kind of like, let's go. We don't want to work. People don't want to stack, stack shelves and work at checkouts and such forth. So we just start automating that kind of stuff. But. We need to have some kind of meaningful, creative position in the world. And I think yeah. as a designer, if I think, what could I automate? Door schedules. Yes, please. Get yeah. rid of all of those. Yes, please. You know, windows, window schedules, uh, MBS spec writing. I don't really want to do that. I, I want to sit kind of in a nice, comfortable chair with a pad of paper and a, and a pen. And I want to sort of sketch out my dreams. And then I want somehow that to kind of, um, to maybe, th and then have collaborative discussions with people. And whereas at the moment, our kind of wonderful design process, culture, craft, if that, if that forms about that part of the process, then actually doing all the heavy lifting, uh, checking on the contractors, stage four, stage five, everything like that is probably like kind of making up that. Yeah. And if we can use this technology to switch that, so you could just, instead of spending kind of two weeks coming up with a design and then eight months building it, you can reverse it and spend eight months just like, best thing ever and then you push a button and there we get comes up that would be for me that's the dream yeah i i i mean i 100 agree 
if we can get to that point, that would be, that would be amazing. Cause mm. I mean, you know, we've all been in a position where we end up doing so much admin, uh, in our roles that actually you f sometimes forget to, uh, you know, sit down with a piece of paper, a bit of tracing paper and scribble something. And I think that's yeah, yeah. so important. If we don't do that, then, you know, you sort of, you are, you are slightly losing it, which is what happens when you do an NBA schedule sometimes. <laughs> so no, it is, it is what it is. But, um, one thing I wanted to ask actually, and you've, you've mentioned that you've got this, um, group at Kingston. Do you, do you think, I guess not just you, but do Kingston sort of feel that actually as a, as a university, as a, as a course that. This is something that you really are going to push through the curriculum, um, with your students, or do you think it's something that you're actually going to slowly look at and sort of monitor, see how it goes? Going for an exclusive here, pardon, but it sounds of it. Just... <laughs> <laughs> what no, does Kingston I mean, want to do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What's, what's the university's entire policy on it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Part of conversations with the School of Design within yep. Kingston School of Art. So I guess I could talk a bit about what we're doing in terms of formally, formally finding ways to implement yep. that into curriculums. We're not doing that at the moment, present, as far as I'm understood. I'm not writing anything, any modules or any precise lectures. At the moment, this group operates as a kind of research avenue, the interests yep. that students can dip in and out of and, and actually they can come and they can learn something about AI and they can take it back into their, into their environment and, uh, scare their lecturers with it. Hopefully <laughs> not. Um, so, but a couple of my, a couple of my students come along, they found it interesting and they started making collages out of this, this kind of stuff. And they, the best thing about it is they're starting to use it in ways that I, couldn't, I would never think about using it. And then that's what we're looking to get at, at the moment. So I think we're dipping our toes in and mm. UAL are running a, a series at the moment, AI conversations that's been every Friday for kind of 12 weeks and everyone's kind of dipping their toes in and trying to test the temperature of, of how we can then next step will be, it will be AI, AI literacy will be the term that will be, that'll be thrown about and that, that'll be kind of an employability criteria at that point, because we imagine the students, the students we've got, this has been around since 2021. So we're looking at sort of two-ish years that, that these technologies have actually been in the, been in, been in our environment, but their students who are going to arrive, perhaps that will come with them a bit more natively. I mean, they all arrive with iPads nowadays. We were saying the difference, right? Yeah. Is that iPads didn't exist when, uh, when I was at university, so they're coming with a level of digital literacy already. They will start coming with kind of, and portfolios will be made with AI and we'll have to kind of negotiate those avenues as well. So it's disruptive, but I'm sort of, I just can't, I just can't look past the, the positives and the, and the joy of it all. And uh -huh. our, our group's trying to create balanced approach. We're trying to look at biases and kind of dangers perhaps of, of AI, but Ultimately, we're kind of looking as designers, how can we use this to our advantage? The Pandora's box has been open. Now what are we going to do with it? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really, really good point. Actually, I've, I've got a family friend who, who works on Microsoft and he's, he's been sort of mentioning chat GPT and, and all those what amazing things that, you know, 
Microsoft are really pushing it through right now in terms of what AI is capable of. And, you know, they had a, a massive AI conference, um, not too long ago, actually down in the Excel and, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing how some of these software giants are really sort of pushing it. And I, I, I definitely agree that I think before long, we're going to start seeing it crop up into Autodesk or whether it's Rhino or whatever it might be. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's only a matter of time. And I think then for me, it will be, will be interesting. I think if you can get a product like Revit, where it has elements of it that you can type in, that you can play around with it, then I think it goes beyond what, um, perhaps what Grasshopper could potentially do to something that is a little bit more intelligent, where you can start playing around with things. And for me, I think the most exciting thing of it is with AI is, is the accessibility. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a bit of a dad. I like technology, but I don't like coding. It goes over my head. If I can see something and I can toggle a couple of switches and sliders, then, then, you know, for me, that's even better. And I think that's probably where, where I feel the future of it personally is, is where that if we're going to find solutions. And for me, I look at AI as a design tool to help us find those solutions then it's got to, it's got to do that. Um, mm. but yeah, let's see. Um, Absolutely. I mean, on that as well, if you just, if you're just saying about the accessibility, think about, I, I always bemoan our, our predecessors. So when they went to university, you know, maybe everything was by hand. Think about Alistair Barr, legends, absolute legend of bugs. That is when, when he went to university, hand, hand drawing, probably model making and a watercolor painting. Perhaps you take oh, yeah. some photographs. Your skill set was kind of, um, you had to be amazing at a certain number of things. Now, I, f I have quite a lot of sympathy for students because they have to then, they're coming to me as well and they're going, I need to learn Rhino, I need to learn Enscape, I need to learn Vectorworks, I need to learn Autocad, yeah. SketchUp. It's all of the Adobe suites, then all of the offices. And then, oh, there's this, these other kind of QS tools. Mm -hmm. which I'm just like, wow, it's just so hard these days. And actually, yeah. you're right, if we could find some way of just, like reducing these really complex softwares down into like, give me a pretty building. No, not a lot of that. No. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't it reduce this wall thickness by 10 yeah. mil by changing products that are on the market? Go. And okay, that's cool. Like it's starting to, if I can use a language that's kind of, that I've already got and I can apply these skills in different ways, it, it becomes a lot more accessible and, and I can just work seamlessly between softwares without having to kind of go through all those kind of yeah. learning bumps on the way. Well, it is. I mean, I had a, um, I was speaking to, um, a supplier recently and he was showing me a additional service that they offered in terms of actually doing some glare control calculations and overheating calculations. And the software that they showed was, you know, complicated, you know, obviously yeah. He had been trained on it and I was very interested in what it could, you know, give us in terms of data. So, you know, we could work on a building together. That's great. No problem. But if we in the practice want to do that, then it's got to be a little bit more accessible. Um, otherwise I, I, I do sort of worry that you end up having to learn, as you said, like 50 different softwares and you're sort of stretched quite thin, aren't you? 
Yeah, and you, I'm starting to find, uh, or I'm starting to feel, we're at this kind of point. You know, you think about work from from the Butler, and uh, I've got I've got an ex student uh, of mine. He, I taught at Brighton. He's now at the Butler. Absolute stunning work. Big up Eddie. Uh, you know Eddie. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he's just I'm seeing absolutely incredible work, and the skill levels and specialism he has developed in that is is fantastic. And I think about. Uh, the um he's using a lot of AI as well, so future guests. Okay. Uh we've and then I go go back to my going back to my students, maybe they've all entered university at the same level. Those mm. that are developing skills super quickly, but maybe kind of they're because they're able to pick up these skills so quick, they're they're pushing up and they're and finding success quite easily and accessible. Those that may be still quite, still very creative, very talented, have a really good design eye, but are struggling on the skills side of things. Maybe their their rise is kind of. I think I was a bit like that as well. I was a bit slower, and then it kind of started to click, and I started to really catch up, kind of thing. So, I think if if AI can help democratize that kind of process, that can only be a positive for design. Yeah, definitely. I don't. I don't disagree with that. I think that. If you can do that, then I think you're also going to level the playing field a little bit more, which mm. is then a bit more interesting in terms of seeing what people can actually achieve. And talking nice. about what people can achieve, I've uh, I have a final question for you. Yep. So, if money was no object and you could do whatever you want with it, what's the one thing that you think that you could implement that you think to ca- to tackle climate change? Okay. So to zinger this one, and I, I was looking at it from different angles. I do because I like to look at the big picture. I, I do find found it quite hard to kind of link it to design and and architecture. I mean, guess I'm a big fan of scarcity. So I believe we're the problem. You know, I, I think I think. But when I say that, I mean in terms of quantity. There's, there's kind of too many of us going about. And uh, so I looked at the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals because we. We do a lot of training with that in the university, and we try and meet those as well. So, current populations estimated uh, 7.7 billion. That was 2019, and expected to rise to 9.7 billion. So, if money was no option, I, I think that's the. There's different avenues you could take. That's the one I would go for. I would think, how can I kind of reduce that number? And it, it, it doesn't lead to architectural solutions. It leads to more kind of policy and governmental solutions. So it, it does lead, I suppose as an educator, it does lead to a lot of um, propositions such as educating on family planning and improving access to sexual health, uh, sexual health measures in that way. So that that's the kind of solution that I, that I would put. It's not architectural. So. <laughs> I was not expecting that answer. <laughs> Climate change is, you know, yes, we've, we've got a situation with our planet, you know, we've, we've got to tackle it in many different areas, you know, whether it is through our buildings or even if it is through policies and, you know, through infrastructure or whatever it might be, or even going right to the source of it, where's our energy coming from? And, you know, a lot of, a lot of our, a lot of our, you know, Utility companies are, you know, some, some better than others are, you know, making the right efforts and, you know, trying to find green sources. 
some not so much. I think they're sort of greenwashing a few things. Uh, let's not name any names. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, I think it's really interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that you actually gave me a non-architectural answer. Um, maybe that will set the benchmark for the future episodes. Who knows? But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it is interesting actually, isn't it? Because I mean, you know, there are widely populated countries out there in the planet and mm. you know, is that something that you should do or not? You know, who knows? More people means we need more built. I suppose less to back more people, more buildings, less people, less buildings, less work for architects. It's very difficult one to, uh, so actually sort of balance. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting point though, cause there's, there's often been, and I think you and I've discussed this once a, a long time ago, but there's, there's always the conversation about the cities, you know, versus, mm -hmm. you know, towns and villages. There is a big, big congregation of people coming to the cities. There's a big migration of that happening. It's happening across the world. Perhaps that is an element where it shouldn't be happening so much. I mean, obviously that goes back down to, you know, government policy, you know, um, inciting people to stay in other cities, you know, spreading population around or creating jobs elsewhere. I mean, that's obviously a big thing. If you can, can create an equal level of job, not just in, you know, the big smoke of London, but elsewhere, then, you know, people will be more willing to spread out a little bit more. And I think that then is an interesting point, actually, what you made that it's it's um it's also about control of population because if you've got a big saturation in one area then there's a massive demand i mean the urban heat island effect is happening in london because of that right so then you're spending mm -hmm. more resource more energy to try and cool things down if you'd spread it out a bit more then perhaps that's a different way of looking at things yeah you is that your proposed solution to the question oh i don't know let's see what would you do with that money and spread it all out <laughs> I don't know, actually. I've not, I've not, I, the question hasn't been turned back to me yet. So I'll have to think about it. <laughs> no, it's, um, yeah, it's definitely something to, for me to think about as well, but I, I'm quite happy with that answer. There you go. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Ad adaptive, adaptive reuse is, is going to be huge. We know that we, it's already huge. It's going to be even bigger and we take what we've got, make the best out of it. And and that, that again, links to that kind of scale of inhabitation, I guess we're talking about. So as in what, what we do on our course, a big part of it, big theme is adaptive reuse. We're really happy to be part of that movement. Really happy that we get to have these conversations about circular economy and how we can try and try and link those, link those in. Thank you very much, Ed. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to me today. And, uh, for those who are listening, thank you very much for tuning in to the first episode of Brick and Block. There will be more to come. Got some really interesting guests, uh, got some more academics, got some consultants, even got builders. I mean, really interested to hear what they would say as well from their perspective. So definitely keep tuning in, um, like, share, subscribe, be ready for the next one. Thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you, Ed, again, and I'll see you guys in the next one. Mm -hmm.